This is Incredible Stories Podcast, Episode 33, The Radioactive Boy Scout, Part 2. Hello, hello, everyone. It's time for another Incredible Stories podcast. I'm Josh Virella, your sedulous host, and thanks for being here. And just as every episode, if you like this one, make sure to share it and let me know on either of our various social media platforms. I'll reference them at the end. And also, you can send me an email at contact at incrediblestoriespodcast.com. Go ahead, send me a haiku about this episode or any past episode or really anything, really. Okay, so let's get into the story. Last week, we started the story of the radioactive Boy Scout, the story of a young man hell-bent on building his own nuclear reactor in his mother's shed. And if you haven't listened to part one, go back and do so to get a good background on David Hahn. Last week, we left a 15-year-old David fresh off his receiving the Atomic Energy Merit Badge and motivated to build, so today I'll be getting into David's quest for getting the parts and material necessary to construct his very own nuclear reactor. Here's what I know. David Hahn, the Michigan Boy Scout, was looking to make what is known as a breeder reactor, which is a type of nuclear reactor that creates more energy than it burns. How? Well, it works like this. A breeder reactor will turn uranium-238 into a fissible substance like plutonium-239. So ideally, uranium isotope-235 is a preferred nuclear material as it is considered to be fissile, meaning it can sustain a fission chain reaction which is the basis of a nuclear reaction. But uranium-235 is rare, while uranium-238 is pretty abundant, comparatively. But because it can't sustain a nuclear reaction on its own, it is less valuable. But what it can do is turn into plutonium-239, which is a fissile material capable of sustaining a fission reaction. And to do this, you need a fast neutron to be fired at a uranium-238 atom, which will then transmute it into plutonium-239. Ah, geez, that's a lot of science going on. Oh wait, there's more. So the fast neutron hits the uranium-238, which absorbs the neutron, becoming uranium-239. But the uranium-239 has a half-life of... 2.35 minutes, in which it decays into Neptunium-239, which has a half-life of 23.5 days. That will then decay into Plutonium-239, which has a half-life of 24,000 years. Pretty stable. So that is useful for fuel in a nuclear reactor, because now it is fissile, meaning any energy neutron can make it split up. And a breeder reactor can make more of this than it uses. It sounds like magic, but it isn't because the initial fuel is uranium, which you don't use a lot of. It will decay into a fuel, plutonium, that reacts in such a way the breeder reactor just doesn't burn through it that quickly and will create more of it as long as the neutrons are moving fast. Does your head hurt? Mine does. 
I hope I explained this correctly, but to be safe, I'm going to link to someone smarter than I am in the matter of breeder reactors in the show notes, so check them out to get the full skinny. So David, of course, didn't have funds that backed nuclear power plants and research. His lab was a backyard shed, and he had the tricky legality of obtaining and using radioactive material. It's not like you can just walk down to Walmart and get a case of uranium. But at this point, I think we can all agree that David was a clever fellow. He assumed several aliases and was resourceful in finding material which he could irradiate. Firstly, one needs a Geiger counter when dealing with radiation so you'll know how much radiation you're getting exposed to. This was easy. David got that mail ordered and assembled it into his Babe Magnet Pontiac 6000 aka the Giggity Counter. <laughs> now he knew in order to make a reactor he would have to irradiate something and to do this he would need a neutron gun or a modulated neutron initiator as it's known more scientifically. But you knew that. This essentially is a device capable of producing a burst of neutrons that fire into an isotope. As I mentioned earlier, you would need to do this to start a chain reaction. He would of course need some radioactive material. But how would he get it? Well, he remembered from his Atomic Energy Merit Badge pamphlet that several organizations had this knowledge. These agencies were the Edison Electric Institute, the American Nuclear Society, the Department of Energy, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, and the Atomic Industrial Forum. So David started writing letters. This is by hand folks, no emails at this time. David wrote up to 20 letters a day and claimed to be a physics teacher at the high school he attended, that being the Chippewa Valley High School. So he received some information of little use from most of these organizations, but some sent him pretty good info. The Nuclear Regulatory Commission, for instance, corresponded with David as a peer. Their director of isotope production and distribution, Donald Erb, began a back-and-forth old-timey letter discussion giving tips on isolating radioactive elements and even gave him a list of isotopes that can sustain a chain reaction. And a crucial bit of advice was provided, and that being that nothing produces neutrons as well as beryllium. David was fairly diligent though. He wasn't just going to willy-nilly handle radioactive materials. He may have been trying to build a nuclear reactor in his backyard, but safety first, guys. So David asked Herb on the dangers of handling this radioactive material. Herb assured him it was very slight. Why? Because in order to be at risk of radiation from this material, it would need to be held in quantities great enough that it would be subject to the Nuclear Regulatory Commission licensing. But the NRC was nice enough to also send David a pricing list and commercial sources for the radioactive materials he was wanting to buy. This was exactly what he was looking for. So he had a list of about 14 radioactive isotopes and where to find them. One such element was Americium-241. Remember when he got in trouble for taking smoke detectors? Well, it turns out this element could be found in smoke detectors. And not just this element, 
turns out lots of stuff can be found in normal everyday items. Thorium could be obtained from camping lantern mantles, tritium from gun sights, and radium from clocks. Uranium-238 and small amounts of uranium-235 could be found in an ore called pitch blend, also known as uraninite. So these elements, as you can imagine, are in pretty small amounts in these items. In order to get a good amount, David would need to get his hands on a lot of these things. So, to get Americium-241, David wrote several smoke detector companies saying he needed to get a large amount of these devices for school projects. Surprisingly, one company agreed to sell him defective smoke detectors at $1 apiece. He bought 100 of them. Now, another issue, or boundary if you will, in these devices is to know exactly where these elements were located in these devices. And you can try this yourself. Go ahead, break open a smoke detector. Where is the Americium? It's not labeled. So he wrote BRK Electronics and a customer service lady explained where it was sealed. Thanks for the tip, lady! David gathered the Americium and then welded them together into a bigger mass. Again, these radioactive isotopes are important because when they decay, they emit protons and neutrons. And David needed this for his neutron gun, which was a hollowed out piece of lead with a small hole on one side allowing alpha rays to stream out. In front of the lead block, he put a piece of aluminum foil to absorb the rays. I believe it actually absorbs the protons and lets just the neutrons out. Voila, a neutron gun. But does it work? All he really had was a Geiger counter, no other fancy equipment. And a Geiger counter doesn't read neutron output. And the neutrons is what he needed to detect to make sure he could make the reactor. Luckily, David remembered that paraffin wax will release protons when bombarded with neutrons. And his Geiger counter could detect the emission of protons. So he checked that and what do you know? The thing worked. It was rudimentary, but David had built a working neutron gun. Step two complete. Remember, David wanted to use this gun to make his reactor capable of fission. Next, he wanted to get his hands on some uranium-235, which, as I mentioned earlier, was pretty rare. But David, if anything, was a determined guy, and he began searching all over Upper Michigan for rocks that were hot. This means he was looking for radioactive rocks, ones that would be picked up by his Geiger counter. Now, I couldn't find exactly how much pitch blend one needs to get a suitable amount of uranium, but I assume it's a lot, as David searched hundreds of miles and only managed to find about a quarter of a trunk load worth of rocks containing pitch blend from Lake Huron. So David figured he'd try writing letters again, and this time he posed as a professor and wrote to a Czechoslovakian company that sold uranium to universities and commercial entities. This information again was given to him by the NRC. This facade also worked. He was able to get a few samples of black ore made from pitch blend or uranium dioxide, and these samples contained a small amount of uranium-235 or uranium-238, the elements he was looking for. Ah, but these would need to be refined. So David went back to his lab again, crushed the ore down in order to isolate the uranium, 
But to do this, he needed a source to provide him a commercial amount of nitric acid. You know, the stuff used in explosives. I think you can buy this stuff pretty easily now, but as it's used in explosives, it was kind of hard to get your hands on, you know, being regulated tightly and all. No worries, David knew how to make his own. A little bit of saltpeter, a little bit of sodium bisulfate, some chemistry, and poof, nitric acid. He then added some more chemicals and filtered his concoction through a coffee filter. But here he made his first real mistake. You know, if you don't count the whole endeavor as a mistake itself. You see, David didn't calculate correctly uranium solubility, so the uranium he refined got stuck in the filter. Ugh, we all been there, right? Okay, no worries. Uranium is hard to isolate. Let's try thorium. Thorium-232, when hit with neutrons, makes a fissionable element called uranium-233, which could be used in his breeder reactor. Where would he get this? From those camping lanterns, of course. And he had thousands of camping lantern mantles which contained the element. These he got from a surplus store and proceeded to refine them. So he burned them into an ash of thorium dioxide, which was no good because he needed to extract just the thorium. David, what are you gonna do, man? Oh, buy a thousand dollars worth of lithium batteries because when burned with thorium, the lithium will leave a more pure form of thorium by absorbing the oxygen? Of course, that's what I was going to say. The result? David got a purified thorium 9,000 times that found in nature and 17 times higher than the level authorized without a license from the NRC. That's all he needed, right? Use the neutron gun on the thorium-232 and turn it into uranium-233. Ah, but his americium used in the gun didn't produce enough neutrons, so he needed a better gun and looked to radium to improve his equipment. Where will you get radium from, David? Oh, right. Radium was used in luminescent paint on clock faces and other instrument panels. David went to antique stores and junkyards looking for these older pieces of equipment and clocks that used radium. So David was driving around in his car with his Geiger counter on when it started going crazy. He noticed it did so when he passed a particular antique store, and it did this because they had an old table clock which inside had a vial of radium paint that was most likely left to touch up the clock by the original owner. Josh, why not just go to the store and buy radium paint? Well, I believe it was made illegal to buy radium paint in the 60s because the people who used to paint the dials would lick their paintbrushes and as a result, a lot of them died of cancer. So it wasn't something easy to find in large quantities. But he lucked out with this find. And David needed to concentrate the radium, so he went to a local hospital x-ray department and got a sample of barium sulfate. Yeah. They just handed it to him because he had been there earlier as part of his Eagle Scout badge project. Go figure. David then melted the barium and radium and used his favorite scientific filter, the coffee filter. This time it worked correctly. He then did some more science stuff to it and dehydrated it into salts which he could then pack into his new neutron gun. Good lord this guy was crafty. Okay. So now he built a new gun. 
This time, using the beryllium that his friend Herb suggested was the best source for neutrons. He did this by obtaining a piece of it from the Maycomb Community College, which a friend of his whom attended the college may or may not have stole for him. The result of this was the creation of the Neutron Gun 2.0, a more powerful, Optimus Prime-worthy science gun. Okay, so he shot his Neutron Gun at the thorium and uranium powder. The thorium proved to be releasing fissionable atoms, but the uranium was not. Bummer. What was going wrong? He wrote the NRC again under their professor guise, and they informed him that he was shooting the neutrons too fast for the uranium and to slow them down by using water, deuterium, or tritium. Well, water was easy to get, so that was too boring for David. So he decided to try and get himself some radioactive tritium, which was commercially available in bow and gun sites. Now, here he grew more sneaky. You see, he would order some sites from mail order catalogs, get the sites, and carefully remove the tritium from the inside, then return the site to the place of purchase saying it didn't work. They would repair it or send a new one, which he would then repeat the process. Each time he did this, he would gain a tiny little amount of tritium. And when he had enough, he then put it all over the beryllium strip, then fired his neutron gun at his thorium and uranium powder again. Over several weeks, he noticed the uranium was indeed getting more radioactive. Now, this all took a long time to amass, as you can imagine. And by now, David was 17 years old and his breeder reactor was in reach. He pretty much had all the mechanics down, he just needed 30 pounds of enriched uranium in order to create a sustained chain reaction. That's a lot. 30 pounds of anything would be a lot, but David's goal, I believe, was to just get as far as he could. And even if he couldn't get a sustained nuclear reaction, he'd be happy with just producing interactions with the various radioisotopes. He just wanted some kind of reaction. Personally, I would have settled for the fizz of an Alka-Seltzer tablet in water, but David went ahead and built a crude checkerboard pattern breeder reactor, aligning the radioactive radium and americium, mixed them with the isotopes of beryllium and aluminum shavings, wrapped in aluminum foil to make a core for his reactor. Then he blanketed the core with small thorium, ash, and uranium powder cubes wrapped in foil and these were stacked in a checkerboard pattern and held together as all nuclear reactors are with duct tape. So did the reactor work? Hell yeah it did! His Geiger counter was going crazy! He was achieving at least some of the reactions that a full-scale breeder reactor goes through. Now, luckily for him, he didn't have enough material to reach a critical mass, that being the 30 pounds of enriched uranium. If he had that much, it would have just continued going and going. David wasn't huge on safety measures, as for this point, his biggest safety feature was a makeshift lead poncho and disposing his clothes in the trash, like outside the one that gets picked up every week. His radioactive clothes were being thrown in the garbage. Once his reactor was working, he suddenly began to worry about the radiation exposure he was not only getting himself, but he was considering what danger he was putting others in. 
So what did David do? Shut it down? No! He had gotten advice through a friend of his, one of the few that knew of his project's full extent, and that advice was that he hadn't used any control rods to help regulate the nuclear reactor. His suggestion was to use cobalt because it could absorb the neutrons without becoming visible themselves. Control rods are used to help regulate the reactor so they don't get too hot and melt down. Hmm, cobalt. David said, you know who makes mini cobalt rods? People who make drill bits. So he went to the hardware store and picked up some drill bits and put them between the thorium and uranium cubes on his reactor. This didn't work though. Now his Geiger counter began to pick up readings from five doors down. Jesus, this thing was really humming. I'm sure now he was getting mildly concerned, so he started to dismantle the reactor to help mitigate the radioactive mass accumulated in one place. He figured if he broke it apart, it would start to cool down. So he put the thorium in a shoebox, hid that in his mom's house, left the radium and americium in the shed, and put the rest of the project in the trunk of his car. Okay, so you got parts of a nuclear reactor in a house, in a shed, and in a car. What could go wrong? So David is driving around on August 31st in 1994 in his babe magnet, and he gets pulled over by the police because someone reported somebody was going around stealing tires from cars which David wasn't doing apparently, and he was just waiting for a friend. I suppose that's what you do at 2 a.m. in the morning, hauling a load of radioactive material. I've never done that, but that seems like the thing to do. Well, the police searched his trunk and saw all the science equipment. Chemicals and metal things, foil-wrapped cubes, powders, padlocked boxes, etc. So my boy David told them, excuse me, officer, that stuff you're rummaging through is radioactive. To which the police officer thought he was carrying around a homemade atomic bomb. And what do you do when you suspect a car has been turned into an improvised atomic bomb leaking radiation? Well, you tow it to your police station, of course. Bad decision by the cops. If anything, you leave it there to get inspected and decontaminated. But anyways, the next day, the Michigan State Police Bomb Squad examined the car and asked for the State Department of Public Health to assist because they had all the cool radiological toys. So of course, upon further inspection, they figured out it wasn't an atomic bomb, but that there was radioactive material and concerningly high concentrations of thorium, and of course, the other radioactive materials. So what this did was cause the Federal Radiological Emergency Response Plan to be invoked. Phone calls were made to the Department of Energy, the Environmental Protection Agency, the FBI, and the NRC. Now, David wasn't very cooperative, and it wasn't until Thanksgiving timeframe that the DPH interviewed David about what he was doing. At this time, he finally told them he actually had a backyard laboratory that was used to create and house his experiment. They investigated the shed behind his mother's house and found the levels of radioactive materials to be excessive. How excessive? Well, a thousand times higher than the normal background levels. And to be sure, this reading would have been much higher had it not been for David's mother going into the shed and getting rid of a lot of the stuff including the neutron gun, radium, thorium, etc. 
She was scared that her house or son would be taken away, I imagine. David did say that, quote, the funny thing is, they only got the garbage, and the garbage got all the good stuff, unquote. Because, of course, they threw out all the heavily contaminated items in the trash. But the authorities determined that nothing had leaked outside of the shed, so they sealed it and asked the federal government to step in and clean it up. But the NRC hadn't licensed David, so they couldn't step in, and the EPA couldn't help because this incident was on private citizens' property, which was out of their authority to oversee a cleanup. But on January 25th, 1995, the EPA did go out and inspect the site themselves and stated that the area, quote, presents an imminent and substantial endangerment to the public health or welfare or the environment, unquote. That sounds pretty bad. Think about it. This site was a real dangerous hazard. Radiation that potentially could expose more people and animals with each blowing of the wind or rainfall. And I believe the EPA eventually took control of the situation, declaring it as a Superfund site. Not Superfund, Superfund. And a Superfund is a federal program with the intention to fund and clean up sites contaminated with hazardous materials or pollutants. And it wasn't until finally on June 26th that the site was cleaned up for the cost of around $60,000. David's remaining lab bits and experiment were put into sealed barrels and sent to a facility in the Great Salt Lake Desert region, where it was all buried with other radioactive debris from various other factories. Thankfully, there was no significant damage to the environment, but 40,000 people could have been put at risk from radioactive dust and radiation. Now, interestingly, this entire story was kind of downplayed, and many people didn't hear about it until a 1998 article written for Harper's Magazine by Ken Silverstein was published. In fact, when Ken was tracking down all the parties for this article, even the investigators were unaware that David actually built a breeder reactor. They didn't even think a regular civilian could have anywhere near the capabilities or technology to build something like that. I mean, that's nuclear physicist work. Work that needs millions of dollars and funding to pull off. But this was done by just some young Boy Scout. And that's the story of the Radioactive Boy Scout. And now you know what- but, 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 Josh, what happened to David? Don't worry guys, I'm not gonna leave you hanging. After his lab and experiments were shut down and confiscated, David got depressed. Years of work down the drain. The community was kind of pissed at him, he was mocked at school, and even Boy Scout leaders tried to deny him the rank of Eagle Scout, which he didn't have at the time of building that reactor, but he did manage to achieve the rank of Eagle Scout after his lab had been dismantled. Most people, though, mistrusted the guy, maybe justifiably, his girlfriend once sent him some Valentine's Day balloons at school, and the principal took them away thinking David had filled the balloons with some weird gas. Ouch! In 1995, David enrolled in Maycomb Community College for metallurgy, but he just didn't have the interest. He would spend days in bed or just driving around his neighborhood. Like I said, he was depressed. His parents eventually told him, dude, you have to snap out of this you can't live here anymore and pretty much forced him to join the military. 
Ironically, he joined the Navy and got stationed on the USS Enterprise, a nuclear-powered aircraft carrier. He would later switch services and join the Marines, haha. <laughs> but after a few more years, he was dishonorably discharged for medical reasons. Those reasons being diagnosed as a paranoid schizophrenic with bipolar disorder. Now in 2007, David, back home in Michigan, was charged with and eventually served 90 days in jail for attempted larceny after removing a bunch of smoke detectors from his apartment. He was wanting to remove the Americium. Now, if you look at his mugshot, you'll notice his face covered in sores. Presumably, this was from the effects of radiation in his system from the exposure he had so many years before. In fact, years earlier, right after the incident happened in 1995, EPA scientists were worried the radioactive exposure David received would significantly shorten his life. Then, on September 27th in 2016, while shopping at a Walmart, David entered a restroom and died at the age of 39. Now, I didn't see any official coroner report on the cause of death, but his father would later come out and say that the toxicology report indicated he died of alcohol poisoning. But if you ask me, eh... I couldn't find anything definitive stating that, and it would seem to me perhaps his earlier activities might have contributed to his death. But that's the story of the radioactive Boy Scout, and now you know what I know. You know, no matter the cause of death, David Hahn lived a very interesting life, and he was incredibly smart. His achievements in the world of nuclear power was something unimaginable for most. I mean, this guy got incredibly close to building a legit breeder reactor in a shed. It pretty much was, it just wasn't at critical mass. With like nothing, he basically MacGyvered himself a reactor and between the ages of 15 and 17. What's the best thing you ever made as a teenager? Some Lego structure? A macaroni necklace? Shoot, what's the best thing you ever made as an adult? For me, it's a hand-carved chessboard. But the amount of time, energy, and know-how that went into executing his hobby should be something to envy, even if it was potentially dangerous. It's a shame he was never able to harness that into a legit science career, but his story is one more people should know, and I hope I've told it appropriately. And now for something that won't melt your face off, a haiku! Your kid isn't smart. Who cares about honor roll? Dave makes reactors. And that's all for this time, guys. Check out my main site at IncredibleStoriesPodcast.com. Send me an email, show suggestion, or haiku at contact at IncredibleStoriesPodcast.com. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at IncredPod. Rate us on iTunes and peep us out on YouTube and Stitcher. For Incredible Stories Podcast, I'm Josh, and remember, the journey of a thousand tales begins with the first word.